You know, church on most Sundays, I'm very excited to bring an encouraging word to you and uh, always excited about what I get to share with you and like to have fun doing it. I think, you know, kind of that's how I like to go. Um, this morning is not one of those Sundays. Um, it's a hard word this morning. And uh, I fear that the church may become smaller after sharing this word. I, I truly hope that no one takes personal offense at the things that the exhortations I will bring to you today. Um, but if you do, I think you'll be better for hearing them. I love you all so very much, and you know that, I believe. I have a pastoral affection for you that is um, really beyond words. And I love you too much not to tell you the truth when the truth needs to be told. And if it's any consolation as this stuff rolls out today, I was personally convicted by this word and dealt with my lack before I brought it to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you, Lord, and we love your love, and we love your spirit, and we love your power, and we love salvation, and we love forgiveness, and we love healing, and we love just the powerful positive moves of your Holy Spirit that we have been a part of here. We just are so excited about all of that, Lord. Indeed, we will continue to be excited about all these things, but today I hear a, a word, a stern word from you for the church today, Lord. And I pray, God, that you'll hide me behind this cross. I pray that no one will see me, hear me, that if offense is taken, it will be the offense of the word of God. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come now and, and uh, bear your message to your people as you bore it to me and bring about a purified bride, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'll be continuing in this series, the seven letters to the churches that Pastor Christian started for us a couple of weeks ago, and he'll be bringing another installment next week. And we're looking at these seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we've already noted how these seven churches were seven actual churches in Asia Minor uh, that existed at the time of the writing, and there were seven actual letters, seven actual churches. And uh, the Lord had something to say to each one of these churches. And their, their configuration in, in geographically was, a play, was kind of a mail route, a delivery route. The, the sequential order that we find them in Revelation 2 and 3 correspond to uh, a mail route that I pointed out last week uh, as, uh, oddly resembles the state of Michigan. So uh, be that as it may, we're going to be in the next letter, the letter to the church in Pergamum or Pergamos, either one is correct. And we'll be looking at what the Lord said to the church in Pergamum in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And there we read, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne 
yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes I will give him, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's ask the same three questions I recommended we ask last week, and we'll start with the question, what was the original meaning? In order for us to understand what God is saying to the church today in any part of his word, we must trouble ourselves to say, well, what did God originally mean when he first inspired this writing to an actual church? So we start with Pergamum or Pergamos, the city about 50 miles north of Smyrna. And uh, we talked about Smyrna last week as we go up the mail route here. It was known for its production of papyrus, which was the thing that they wrote upon. And uh, actually the name Pergamum has an ancient derivation with papyrus. It was a substantially Gentile city, very few Jewish people there. So the church then that was emerging in Pergamum was largely Gentile. So it would have looked vastly like us in, in that respect. Smyrna there, according to verse 13, was a, was a terrible place. Uh, they were affirmed in verses 12 through 13 about how they stood up to persecution and even to the place of martyrdom where Antipas held out and was even killed gloriously for, for his faith and brought glory to God even in his death. But he said, I, we have some problems there. And he said, it's a terrible place in verse 13 where the words are where Satan has his throne. Now, that's not something you want to hear in description from the Lord about your city, is it? Last week, remember when we saw Smyrna was a place where a, the synagogue of Satan was, but where Satan has his throne sounds much worse, doesn't it? It sounds just a lot worse, and in fact, it was. This was the throne of Satan. And what, what I believe it meant by that was that this was the place where Satan had his strategic center of operations for Asia Minor. That there, there, there are places where Satan dwells. You know Satan's not in hell. You know this, right? Satan, he will be in hell. Glory to God. He will be in hell forever and ever. But now he is not in hell. He is the prince of the power. He's, he's the lord of this world. The world, in distinction to the church, the world belongs to Satan. And so this was the center. He had a throne in Pergamum, the center of his strategic operations. You've got to understand something. Satan is not infinite. Satan is not God's equal opposite. Satan is a finite being, and so he has to be strategic, and so he had a strategic center of operations in this place called Pergamum. I think so because it was the convergence of three evil entities. First, it was a place, Pergamum was a place where the throne of Zeus was. And Zeus, of course, was like the chairman of the board of pantheon of Greek gods. He was the big god, the big idol among them. 
And, and in Pergamum, they had up on the Acropolis, the high point, they had, a, they had a monument of the throne of Zeus. This was, the, this was as it were, the, 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 the idol of the city. So that's one, one evil entity. A second evil entity in Pergamum was the temple of Asclepius. And Asclepius, I'm sorry, Asclepius was known as the, the god of the idol of healing. And so when you wanted to be healed of something you just couldn't seem to get over, you, you implored Asclepius to take up your cause. Now the temple in Pergamum was the temple to Asclepius, and there, associated with that temple, were snakes. So that, in fact, the whole floor of the temple was covered with non-poisonous snakes. And so in order to get your healing, you would go to Pergamum, you would implore the idol Asclepius to take care of you, and you would spend the night on the floor of the temple while these snakes slithered up to you, around you, over you. And this was thought to bring about your healing. This was an evil entity. Did you ever wonder why the symbol for the World Health Organization and the American Medical Association is a combination of a stick and a snake? Some will argue that it's because Moses held up the snake in the wilderness, but they know it as the rod of Asclepius. Now, I'm not throwing physicians under the bus with this. I don't mean that at all. Enormous respect, of course, for the medical profession. Like Satan just works, seems to work into everything. The third evil entity in Pergamum was that there was the first, in Asia Minor, the first temple to the Roman emperor. You know, they worshipped the Roman emperor. You know this, right? They bowed down. In most cities, one day a year, you were required to bow down and make sacrifices to the Roman emperor. In Pergamum, it was going on all the time because his temple was there. Now, now, Christians, they had a real problem with this, didn't they? Because they wouldn't bow down. And it's how they so often wound up losing their lives. They wouldn't bow down to the Roman emperor, not even one day. They wouldn't pay supernatural homage to the Roman emperor. They wouldn't do it. And they, they held up, even here in Pergamum, where it was so prevalent they resisted that even to the point of death. He said, you remain true to my name. So that until 313 A.D., a couple hundred years after all of this happened, more than a couple hundred years, until the Edict of Milan, it was illegal to be a Christian. You see, in, in the Roman Empire in these days, you were allowed to have another religion as long as when it was time to bow down to the emperor, you bowed down. But Christians wouldn't do this. And so it became illegal to be a Christian to the point of death because they wouldn't do this. So here you have this temple. You have this city that had become extremely friendly with the Roman government. It accommodated Zeus and Asclepius and actually four other gods. And the message then to them was no compromise. 
No compromise. He says, never, I just am so happy. I'm so pleased that you held faithful to my name. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites. If you've read the book of Numbers, you know that part. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He said, you got people there who are in it for the money. They'll say anything. They'll say anything to keep the seats full, keep the coffers full. He said, you have people there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. To another place, he says, I hate. So you have this compromise, this marriage of the world and the church. This is what's happened. He says, you've accommodated the world at the, exclu- at the exclusion of the church. You've accommodated it. You've You've taken the pressure off yourself by compromising the clear word of God. Been married to the world. And he says, no compromise. No compromise. No compromise. He said, if you don't take care of this, I will come with a sword coming out of my mouth and I will deal with it. These are the words of the Lord. Yes or no? This marriage with the world. That's the original message. The eschatological message is the second question we started asking last week. Eschatological, big word I recognize, but it just means eschatos from the Greek, which means the end time. What about the end? There's a lot in here. I refer you to Brother Pat over here who could probably... Take lots of time with you through the eschatological stuff, but I just want to point out something wonderful about verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if you're hearing, great. (laughs) To him who overcomes, that's your call. I will give some of the hidden manna. Man, that's huge. I wish I had time. (laughs) This is at the end. If you overcome. Here's what's coming for the authentic believer. But catch this, I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. What's that? So, so in Roman days, when it was time for a jury to convene, they had two stones in their hands, each member, a black stone and a white stone. They considered the defendant to be guilty, they dropped in a black stone. If they considered the defendant to be innocent, they dropped a white stone. The Lord says, here's what I have for you guilty sinners. I have a white stone with your name written on it. (laughs) Because of the cross of Christ, because of the blood of Christ, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that those who authentically come to him who overcomes, to him who puts his arms down and stops objecting and rationalizing to their own sin, To him who overcomes. Remember what he said about the Nicolaitans, about Balak and Balaam. To him who overcomes. To him who sees this and comes to me and stays with me, I'm going to give him a white stone on that day. But not only a white stone, but a white stone with your name written on it. Not your now name, 
a name known only to you and him. The intimacy you will have with God in heaven, he will have his own name for you that only you know. You know, the worship we do here is just a foretaste of that. It's just a, it's a crumb that's fallen from the sky compared to what's coming. This is a picture of the authentic believer's future. The person will stop making excuses, he says, their marriage with the world. Stop saying yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. And the third question I implored you to ask last week is, what's the present day application? Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? No compromise. No compromise. Church and the world, no compromise. It's the painful part. The American church, the church in the Western Hemisphere in general, has become so interested and so devoted to relevance that I fear we have compromised the truth of God. I'm all about relevance. I, I, I don't want things to be irrelevant. I, I, it would be ridiculous to come to church and it was, had no application, no connection with our lives. But in an interest of relevance, we... We've married the world. And so the center of the church, perhaps, is no longer Christ and his cross, but it's the program. It's the come to this, come to that, come to this. We're going to make this as easy as possible for you. We're going to make this, and we call that relevance. And we're not going to talk about this, and we're not going to talk about that. Because we want it to be relevant to you. We don't want you to shut us down because we want it to be relevant to you. I fear that a compromise. Well, you learn in elementary school that when you mix primary colors together, you get a new color, right? So when you mix red and yellow, you get orangish, whatever that color is. What I want you to notice about this is that in the new color, when they're completely blended, neither one of the, early, neither one of the original colors exist anymore. You, can't even, you didn't even know what it was before that. When the church marries the world in this way, if one of these were the church and one of them were the world, you can't see the church or the world in it anymore. This is not what it means. <laughs> when the church marries the world, you can't see the church. It's not good church. It's not even good world. To be a worldly Christian just defies my logic. Why would anybody who would be a worldly Christian? In other words, you, you give up the things that the world has to offer for what? For nothing. For nothing. You end up with nothing. Except this obligation to do the church thing. Some people would say that the, the church in the world would look like this. That this is what it means for the church to be in the world. That the church is a very separate entity from the world. And so we must huddle up in the middle. And we must keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And we must be in the center of this thing and we're just hanging on until Jesus comes back, right? And this is being, we sometimes say, in the world but not of it. 
I don't like that. What I would rather think of is this. We're not disconnected from the world, but we can't marry the world. We are, we are here for the world. We are here to be witnesses to the truth for the world. When we give up that position, we cease to be the church. We're here to be scattered as salt in the world. But we can't compromise in the process in our interest of gaining an audience. You know, we're, this place is such a loving church by and large. But I, I, and I love you, but I hope, I hope that our love is not mistaken for the approval of your sin or of my sin. I think when we come to church, sin should make us uncomfortable. And we will always be loving church. I don't judge you. If the word judges you, that's kind of between you and him. I don't judge you. I just bring you the word. I don't want you to judge me. We can't. The American church and we among them are living, I think, on a very slippery slope. In our interest in making the gospel of Jesus Christ relevant to the people of the world, we place ourselves in a position where some will truly fall. In some cases, it has resulted in very well-known and high-profile church leaders becoming exposed for everything from adulterous affairs to embezzlement and even serious drug addiction. And some of these leaders felt they could live in both the church and the compromised morals of the world, and they lost everything in the process, and they led throngs of people with them. I should not want to be that person. When we do this, it represents a, a compromise in the clearly stated moral teachings of the Bible. A compromise in the morality of Christian living. Because we're not saved by our works. We're saved by the grace of God. Agreed? So that's how we're saved. But what are we saved into? We're saved into a walk with the Lord. We're saved into a call to righteous living. There is very clearly a certain moral life the Lord calls and commands us to live as part of his new creation. We're not saved by that, but in response to that, we enter into it. And there are certain behaviors that we allow, that we, from which we are called to repent, confess, and stop. And I just want to be clear. I want to be clear that everyone understands that our love does not extend to an approval of sin. And I'm going to read some things here. I'm just going to read them. And I'm just going to, as I heard them, 
I'm just let them fall. Just to be clear. If you are not married and participating in a sexual relationship, then the Bible says you are in sin. And you need to repent, confess it, and stop. If you are married and you are viewing pornography and otherwise allowing your mind to entertain lust, then the Bible says you are in sin and you need to repent, confess it, and stop. If you are living in a homosexual relationship or otherwise acting out homosexual desires, then the Bible says you are in sin and you must repent, confess it, and stop. Don't amen that over anything else. You wait. Don't amen that over anything else. I find that so insulting. When we love to champion that one and yet we permit divorce, well, let me just give you the next one. If you are pursuing a divorce without truly biblical grounds for doing so, then the Bible says you are in sin and you must repent, confess it, and stop. If you are using your freedom to drink alcohol to any point of drunkenness, then the Bible says you are in sin and you need to repent, confess it, and stop. If you are considering having an abortion, or have had an abortion, or have been the father or a party with someone who had an abortion, then you are in sin and must repent and confess it and stop. If you are all caught up in money and possessions and clothes, then the Bible says you are in sin and must repent and confess it and stop. If you cannot control your gossiping or critical tongue, then the Bible says you are in sin and that you are hurting the Lord's church and you need to repent, confess it, and stop. If you are practicing magic arts and dabble in the occult, then the Bible says you are in sin and that you must repent, confess it, and stop. If you are participating in conversations and social media communications that promote division in the church, then the Bible says you are in sin and that you must repent, confess it, and stop. If you do not tell the truth, but rather rationalize your lies, then the Bible says you are in sin, and you must repent, confess it, and stop. If you are entertaining hatred toward anyone in the world, when the, then the Bible says you are in sin, and that you must repent, confess it, and stop. Now, it might be going through your mind. Did you have to search the whole Bible for that? I got all of that out of three verses. I got all of that out of three verses. Two in Galatians 5 and one in Revelation 21. You know, and maybe right now the Lord's speaking to you about something that wasn't even in that list. You go, yeah, oh God, you're just sensing it. You know, the Bible says he who has ears. Your ears are burning, they're working. You might be asking the question, why? 
why, why this emphasis on the behaviors, Tom? That's not how you roll. If we're not saved by our works, then why does it matter? If Jesus has died on the cross to forgive me of all my future sins, then why does it matter? It matters for two reasons. One, it's a compromise with the world. It's a marriage to the world, which is the very thing that the Lord was convicting the church in Pergamum of. And the second thing is, because if we do not confess and stop doing those things, then we will not be available to God to begin doing the things the Bible calls us to begin. There's not room for it. If we're spending our, our whole life managing our sin. We're not available to God. These 12 things that I read, as I was praying about them even this morning, I just had this image that they are the 12 fingers of Satan around your neck. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to choke off your airway so that you can't breathe the life of God in you. These are 12 fingers of Satan trying to prevent you from breathing and living the life God has called you to live. They cut off your air supply. And maybe you listened, you listened through that list and you thought, well, I, I'm okay. I'm only in there a couple times. One of these can take you out. One of these can take you out. Did you ever see a premier elite athlete sidelined because he had turf toe? Muscles from head to foot? Skill, ability, knowledge? Not playing today because of turf toe. That's a picture of the church, of the believer who says, I'm good, I only got two of these. When God spoke to me about one of these this week, I just fell to my face. I just saw a line that I was shifting around. So all to keep you from getting enough air to serve him, to follow him, to want to follow him. The good news, you can be free from all of them if you repent, confess, and resolve. All this coming back to the cross saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, is not the gospel. Con repent, confess, and resolve. I have found in my own walk with the Lord, which has been going on for a long time now, that the best way to deal with my besetting sins are one day at a time. As a young Christian, I made all these promises about how, God, I'm never going to do that again. I always felt so shamed and so guilty when I was back there. After time, I acknowledged those particular sins that were problem areas for me. There were buttons that the enemy could push. And now I commit myself to the Lord 24 hours at a time in those areas. Typically, before I ever, my feet ever hit the floor, as I wake up in bed, I vow to the Lord, by your strength, by your power. I can't promise this for the rest of my life, but I can commit to it for the next 24 hours, by your strength. One, two, three. Praise be to God, it's been a vastly effective strategy. Somebody, somebody here may be saying, I don't know if I could do 24. Great, start with an hour. To God, for the next 60 minutes by your grace, by your strength. And then when that 60 minutes is up, repeat. The reason is there are, there's another side of morality 
It's not the things we're not meant to do, the destructive stuff, but it's the productive stuff. If you, if you do not participate in the weekly gatherings of the church, but only come when it's convenient or you feel like it, then the book of Hebrews, I'm just telling you Bible, the book of Hebrews says you're in sin and you must begin making participation in worship services a true priority of your life. If you have not yet developed a free generosity with your money and your possessions, then the Bible says you are in sin and you need to begin being generous. If you are not pursuing God in a daily relationship, including his word and prayer, then the Bible says you're in sin and you must begin. If you're not serving God in consistent and sacrificial acts of ministry and service, then the Bible says you're in sin and you need to begin. If you're not living in a quality and authentic relationships with other believers, then the Bible says you're in sin and you need to begin. If you have not yet learned how to speak well of your fellow believers and esteem them as children of the living God, then the Bible says you need to begin. If you're trying to live your Christian life in secret and the world around you is not being affected by your witness, then the Bible says you're in sin and you need to begin. Because being a Christian is a combination of being free of the destructive behaviors and being characterized by the productive ones. Just briefly to close, listen. In addition to compromising the morality of the church by being joined to the world, we can also very easily compromise the message of the church. It's possible to overplay the message of God's forgiveness and grace so much that we fail to expect believers to live a new life. Other churches have arisen which have so effectively integrated the teachings of the world into their message that they have lost the power of the gospel altogether. They give such predictable messages as seven ways to achieve wealth, six ways to become your best self, and they avoid and even deny such words from Jesus. As I tell you the truth, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will find it. I once, heard an, read, I once read an interview with a very popular preacher who has an enormous following who was asked why in his preaching he never referred to that verse or verses like that. And his answer still has a haunting ringing in my ears when he said, well, who would sign up for that? God help us. The morality of the church is essential to an authentic walk with Jesus Christ. Please do not mistake our love for you or your love for me as approval of sin. This is the message of this letter. In the end of the day, we just want to say no compromise. No compromise. And you need to look for the areas of compromise. This week I've had Daniel, Esther, and Elijah, and Paul on my mind. <laughs> no compromise. It's not a license to be mean-spirited, just the reverse. When I think about the sin of the world, my heart of love just grows for sinners. I've got to get them. God help them find the way to Jesus. I said I was convicted by the Holy Spirit with a point of compromise in my own life this week and dealt with it at the cross. And I think that some of you here today are finally ready to repent, confess, 
and resolve. If that is you, please come. This is between you and the Lord now. I judge no one. Repent. Confess. Resolve. You can still come. Repent. Confess. And resolve. Resolve for one hour, one day, whatever. How often do you want to come back to the cross? Repent. Book of Acts says, repent then and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out in the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. <laughs> repent means turn away from our sin. Turn to the cross. Confess. The Bible says God is faithful. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess, receive your cleansing, and resolve. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Look ahead, keep looking at him. The Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Look at him. Some of you can feel the grip of Satan just falling off your neck right now, the airflow opening up. Ooh, breath of God. Breath of God. Just breathe into you now. Deep, breathe deep, beloved. Just breathe. The Bible says that when God made Adam, he breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life. Just let the breath of life come on in now. Just come in. Don't make promises you can't keep. Repent, confess, and resolve. How long can you go and then come back and do it again? I've been doing this my whole adult life, and I'm up to 24 hours. <laughs> this concludes our services this morning. God bless you.